Hello and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to cover alternative performance measures. And to help me through that minefield, I'm joined by Peter Hogarth, who is the leader of our UK accounting technical team. Welcome to the studio, Peter. Hello, Ruth. Good to be here. It's your debut today, Peter. It is my debut. We definitely will have you back. Do not worry. Thank you. Um, So let's start at the beginning. What is an alternative performance measure? Well, as the name suggests... (laughs) It is a performance measure that is alternative to, or not the same as, a performance measure defined in in IFRS or some other accounting framework. Might go by various other names. We could be talking about underlying, adjusted profits, core, non-core, which is a phrase familiar perhaps in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, It's some other measure of performance other than what we find in IFRS, which is challenging in itself because IFRS doesn't define terribly many performance measures. It doesn't define operating profit, for example could also include things like EBITDA, free cash flow, a number of different names. Many names and many different bases of measurement as well. I originally, when I asked you that question, I thought you were going to say, it's a measure of performance. That's alternative. Full stop. I was going, okay. <laughs> well, that captures this, actually. <laughs> it does. Let's stop the podcast there. We don't need any more. Uh, but we do. There's lots to talk about. There so is. <laughs> why do companies use them and is it, is it widely used? Very widely. Depends on where you are in the world. Let's be honest, if I think about my own backyard in the UK, we, we've we looked at the, the type of reporting performed by the FTSE 100, our largest companies in the UK, and the last time we checked, about 95% of them were using some sort of adjusted measure, so that, let's be honest, that's almost everybody. Yeah, wow. In other parts of the world, it might be as common, but then depending on practice and, and regulatory intervention, it might well be that in other parts of the world, perhaps not quite so common, but nevertheless widely used. Why do companies actually prevent these measures? Because one of the core tenets of accounting is that you can compare companies to company, and as I've said, companies can determine the measures that they want. The the honestly held view of the vast majority of companies is that they're trying to be helpful. They're providing additional information to give a, a clearer story of how the business has performed over a period. And we've heard from investors too. We conducted a survey back in 2014 or thereabouts of investors in in various parts of the world and from that survey 65% of respondents and this was investors and analysts um, buy side and sell side 65% of respondents said that they either agreed or strongly agreed that adjusted performance measures were helpful for their analysis. Okay so lots of people love them Mm -hmm. and we generally we've seen they're widely used why do they attract a lot of attention then? I think it starts to flow from what I've already said that because APMs aren't defined and companies can calculate their measures how they choose. There's a lot of inconsistency, lack of transparency perhaps. And there's a concern that because of that freedom, companies are adjusting out for the bad news and not necessarily the good. It's not terribly clear in some cases how the numbers arose. Therefore, our company is actually telling the story they wanted to tell rather than what actually happened in the year. In other words, here was our budget, wasn't it good? Rather than talk about the various variances that might have occurred over the course of the year. Yes, the truth of it is the adjustments are typically debits. Things like restructuring costs, amortisation, sometimes amortisation of acquisition intangibles, sometimes amortisation of everything, uh, share-based payments, impairments. So are we really talking actually about earnings before debits or earnings before bad stuff, (laughs) really? 
a different bit of research it's still in 2014 that I've seen not by PwC on this particular case looked at the S&P 500 companies and the evidence from that survey, uh, study in 2014 was that adjusted earnings across the S&P 500 was 132 billion dollars or 22% higher than the equivalent gap number so there's a lot of there are a lot of debits out there which you would seem aren't being considered when companies are talking about their performance hence the cynicism hence the media comment what about this big debit? And it's prompted some, some very high-profile commentators, Warren Buffett, for example, when talking about companies who exclude the impact of share-based payments from their earnings to say, look, if stock-based compensation isn't compensation, what is it? And if compensation isn't an expense, what is it? Yeah. It is quite interesting. Very recently, we've seen a couple of very high-profile US companies move away from a practice of excluding share-based payments or stock-based compensation from their earnings measure Google and Facebook, to name a couple recently. Microsoft stopped adjusting years ago. So maybe the trend is is shifting the other way. Yeah. Wow. So definitely attracting attention, maybe not the attention companies necessarily want. And I suppose while it's in the spotlight, are we seeing regulators doing anything about that? We are. A number of regulators around the world. If I start in Europe, ESMA, the European Securities and Markets Authority, published some guidelines, which are effective now, have been effective for about a year which set out a, a series of what you might call ground rules, and they, they are mandatory, which when you look at them strike you so much as common sense, but they are all about how you communicate your performance measures in a, in, a, in a clear way. So the definitions provide a clear definition of what your measure is, how it's comprised, give it a meaningful label that might not that shouldn't be confused with an equivalent gap or, or, or IFRS measure, explain why the APM is useful, Are you actually using it within your business, for example? What purpose does it serve? Reconcile, this is really key, reconcile to the equivalent gap number. We hear from investors and analysts all the time that the bedrock of their analysis is is the gap numbers, is the IFRS numbers, notwithstanding how useful they find these adjusted measures. Don't display with more prominence than the equivalent IFRS measures. Provide the measures consistently over time and give comparatives. Now, that, those all sound like yeah, common sense. Common sense. Yeah. And if we look elsewhere, for example, in the US, the SEC has a range of, of guidance, Regulation G, various CNDIs that were published last year, and, and they impose similar requirements, but some particular areas of focus for the SEC would include the prominence point. In their view, prominence means that in any list or analysis of numbers, the gap number comes first. Excluding of charges, but not gains, so be even-handed. Yeah. If there's a one-off debit and a one-off credit, it should be treated in the same way. Recurring expenses of a cash nature, restructuring for example, they really focus on the idea that if something happens a number of times, then it probably isn't exceptional or non-recurring. Yeah, so if you restructure every year for a decade, it probably isn't non-recurring. Yeah. And also there's some particular focus on what they refer to as individually tailored measures of revenue in particular. So is revenue adjusted in some way, for example, to include a share of an associate's revenue in some sort of notional proportional consolidation, they would definitely be asking some questions about that. In the UK, one final bit of regulator action, our FRC, Financial Reporting Council, has started, uh, some months ago actually started a review on non-GAAP measures amongst a, a selection of UK companies, primarily to see how they have complied with the ESMA guidelines in their first year of operation. So it remains to be seen what uh, the FRC school report might be on those. Yeah, and when are we expecting that out? My guess would be sometime before the end of October, and I say that because the FRC publishes its annual report on, on corporate reporting in the UK to about that time scale. So I think we'll see these 
the outcome of these thematic reviews about the same time. Okay, just in time, everyone, for your year-end, if you're a December year-end reporter, so Absolutely. you can look in there. Maybe you can come back to your podcast when, when the review's out, we can talk about it. So the other thing you, you mentioned there was the SEC guidelines. So if anyone does want any more information on that, then we have got a blog where we talk about the do's and don'ts for the SEC guidelines. So that's on pwc.com forward slash IFRS. So we talked about why it attracts attention and we talked about what regulators are going to do. What about over to Cannon Street? What are the ISB doing about it? Well, it's easy to assume that because these are non-GAAP measures, they're nothing to do with GAAP. It's nothing no. to do with the ISB. Non-ISB. Non-ISB. <laughs> but that isn't the truth of it. IS1, the standard on, on presentation, does include some requirements around additional line items, headings and subtotals, where, where in fact it does tell you you should give those additional line items, headings and subtotals where relevant. So that might support those who say that these non-GAAP measures or adjustments or exceptional items, if you like, are a relevant thing, therefore required. But they must be clearly and consistently labelled and presented and not given any more prominence than the equivalent IFRS line item, heading or subtotal or, or profit measure, if you like. So that's what's in GAAP at the moment. Looking to the future, we have a consultation paper open right now on the principles of disclosure. And in that, the ISB is recognising the reality of, of the reporting world and asking some questions that, that lead into a debate around alternative performance measures. So, for example, should the ISB clarify how, if at all, EBITDA and EBIT might be presented in a performance statement, in a, in a statement of income? Should they develop some definitions and requirements for presenting unusual or infrequent or, dare I say, exceptional items? Mm-hmm. Or should they introduce some sort of general standard or requirement for all performance measures and if you look at the the consultation paper what they propose looks rather like the ESMA guidelines actually so should they bring something like the ESMA guidelines within the scope of of, of IFRS? I'm imagining this like there's the IFRS book nice big chunk and then next to it there is just like a book of definitions about every possible non-core adjusted APM you could ever have. Well it could come to it. (laughs) <laughs> so it could come to it. I don't want to read that book. We, we could have a big old series on that. So we talked there about what the ISB is doing. You must look at hundreds of sets of accounts a year, Peter. What are some of the common pitfalls you see? To a large extent, the pitfalls might be not doing what Esmer have said companies should do. But if I pick on, on just two or three, the way measures are defined and labelled and explained, an unclear explanation of what a measure is, can confuse, and particularly if that measure is not effectively reconciled to the GAP equivalent number. You frequently see companies reporting, for example, measures on a constant currency basis, which is helpful, yeah. particularly in a market that's quite volatile, to isolate the impacts of foreign currency movements. A helpful piece of information, but quite often that isn't reconciled to a GAP number. You just simply get a percentage. Revenue is up by X percent on a constant currency basis, and that, that's not terribly helpful to an investor unless they know how that number's derived. So clarity of of labelling and reconciliation is is very important. And also, I would say, explaining what the measure is telling you. Here is a measure, well, so what? What does it tell me that the equivalent gap measure doesn't tell me? The absence of that leaves people scope to be cynical and be critical and the media to make comments about this is all about those before the bad stuff. Yeah. Okay, so... Probably a little bit repetitive, but talking about common pitfalls, let's end on Peter's top tips. What are your top tips for people that are looking at their APM disclosures and thinking how they can improve them? 
Well, we're supposed to always do these in threes, aren't we? Yeah. Well, I'd like to top ten, but you can give me top three. I don't know if you've got <laughs> um, if, if I was to pick on three, it might just be three words that mean very similar things, but clear definitions and labels, good explanations and reconciliations to the gap equivalent, and overall, transparency is key. Okay. So leaving there on Peter's top three tips... You could have a regular slot every two weeks, Peter. Although Peter's top three tips is quite hard to say. (laughs) We have to come up with lots of top three tips, Peter. You start writing them. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. We talked about alternative performance measures. What are they? What's being, why do they attract so much attention? What are the regulators doing about it? And what's the standard setter doing about it? And then, like we said, we ended, I'll see if I can get it out, with Peter's top three tips. I'm going to have a ring tune on that. But thanks for joining us, Peter. Thank you for listening. I'm Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.